0: I know you've all gotten the same phone calls I've gotten, where the uh, phone rings and you answer it and there's this voice that immediately comes on, very pleasant, very friendly voice says, uh, hello Mr. Connor, how are you doing today? Are you having a good day? And they want to do all of this small talk and you know what's coming and you just want to say, would you just get to the point? It's even worse if your spouse does it where they sit down and said, you know, can we talk? And then they have a few other things they want to say, and you know there's something coming. And they lay out these five or six things, and it's like, okay. And the longer they take to lay out those things, the bigger whatever's coming, that they're going to ask you to do, give up, change, never do again, whatever. Well, Paul does that too a little bit in Ephesians. He's really been laying out in chapters 1 through 3 a lot of what God has done for us and what we have as Christians and we enjoy. And he lays all this out. And today we come to chapter 4 where he makes a point. What he asks of us, what he asks of the Ephesians to do. And so um, I want us to look at that. It's in chapters uh, chapter 4. Verse 1, he's listed in chapters 1 through 3, all that God's done, all that we have. And then in four one, as a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now keep your finger there, we're going to go through the, the, the whole passage here, but notice what he says. First of all, I'm speaking to you as one who's already given his life to Jesus. I am his prisoner. And the way he words this, I was looking at a commentary this week, It's he's really not referring to him sitting in a jail cell. He may be in a jail cell when he writes Ephesians. But in this phrase, the way he words it, it's, I have given my life to Jesus. I am his slave, his prisoner. Whatever he wants of me, whatever he wants me to say, I'm going to say it, I'm going to do it. And as that, if that gives him authority for the Ephesians, then listen to me as I say to you. And then that word then is, on all we've talked about in the first three chapters, all that you enjoy as a Christian, all that God has done for you, the point is, your response needs to be this to live a life worthy of the calling you've received that we need to do something about it. There's something for us, a point for us as Christians. And so what is it Paul wants us to do? What consequences are there? We talk a lot about consequences. We always use it negatively. There's consequences for what you've done. But actually, it's a neutral term. There can be positive consequences as well. And in a sense, that's what Paul talks about here. I want to jump down to verse 3, and we'll come back and catch up with verse 2. But his point is in verse 3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. That's the point Paul is making. Because of all that God has given us, and because of all this new life we can have through Jesus to be a part of God's kingdom, What should we do because of all of this? We need to focus on living this uh, life of unity in the Spirit. Now, it's interesting how Paul phrases that, and I want you to catch that. Maintaining the unity of the Spirit. We don't create it. We're actually going to see, and Paul's going to list, all of these things that God has done or given us And that produces the unity. It's there. Our task is to maintain it. Or if you looked at it the other way, not break it. God's already given us this gift, this oneness, this unity of the Spirit. Our task is to keep it and take care of it and maintain it. To keep it going. Now, I want to talk for just a second about what unity means. Because I think sometimes, especially in the church as Christians, we confuse unity. It doesn't mean uniformity. It doesn't mean that we all have to line up and believe the same thing in every detail, in every way. And you and I both know there are churches that mandate that. I don't want to be a part of such a church. I don't think it's healthy. God gives us minds, and he wants us to think. And I think we're enriched when people have different views and different ideas. And as we discuss those kinds of things, that's a healthy church. That doesn't mean we don't have unity. Unity is not that kind of rigid, cloning conformity. It's not an absence of differences. And it is not an absence of disagreement and conflict. That's one of the other things that Christians so often misunderstand. That there's something wrong with us if we ever have conflict, if we ever disagree. That's not realistic. Some of the greatest people in the Bible, we would call them saints, disagreed, had conflict, couldn't work together. So the presence of conflict does not mean there can't be unity. What Paul is talking about and what he asks us to maintain is that sense of we are one team. We are one community. And we are committed collectively to the good of that community, to what we are a part of. And we are committed individually to each other as we are a part of that team. Sure, there will be differences. If you look at 1 Corinthians 12, God wants there to be differences. He designs differences into the church to enrich the church, to make us an orchestra with all the different instruments. So those differences are going to be there. There's going to even be disagreements. Partially because we're all sinners. We're not perfect. But none of that is, not, is prohibiting us from having unity where we are one. We accept and value each other. We are working towards that same goal of following Jesus and being the church he wants us to be. We are committed to each other so much so we know we can count on each other that if I need you, you'll be there, and if you need me, I'll be there. That's the unity that Paul is talking about here. Why is it so important? Why does Paul make such a a big deal out of this? Well, I want to use two phrases of Jesus. Unity is important for us. As Jesus says, a house divided cannot stand. And we all know that's true. A church that is divided and fighting, a church that does not have unity, where people don't value each other, that is a weakened church. And we all who are a part of that church suffer because we are a part of a church that is disunited. And we're weaker. But the other phrase, and we read it earlier in the scripture reading, Jesus says unity is also important so that the world will believe. What I want you to see is unity is important both ways. It's important for us inside this building for what we will experience in the church, but it is also important for the community out there that we have any credibility, that they would have any reason to believe our message of love, of a God who loves them, of a love that oversees our difference, overlooks our differences, and we are still united. For both of those reasons, Jesus says unity is important. And Paul says that needs to be your priority, to maintain that unity of the Spirit. Now, there's two lists I want to look at today. First of all, Paul gives us a list of what I'm calling the sources of our unity. And he lists several things that God has done to produce this unity that's already there. Remember, we only have to maintain it. We don't have to create it. So look with me at verses 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Notice the list that Paul gives us there. There is one body. Jesus has one church. If we're Christians, we're following Jesus, and we're a part of His church. We may talk of different traditions, there may be different names over the doors, but when we get to heaven, there's going to be one church of Jesus Christ. And Paul's point is we need to understand that. Accepting Christ puts us into the same church. There's one body. The second thing Paul says is there's one spirit. As believers, we're taught that we gain the Holy Spirit. We all have that same spirit. And so there is another factor as that spirit is leading me and leading you. He's not going to be leading us into conflict. He's not going to be leading us in opposite directions. There's one spirit working in us. And if we're listening to that Spirit, He's going to be leading us in unity, not disunity. The next thing Paul says is there's one hope. We share that common hope. As we come together, as we take communion, we celebrate one cross that gives us hope. The same Savior died for me as died for you. The same Savior died for that person you disagree with or or you're having conflict with as died for you. And that reminder, that that old phrase, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We all meet at the foot of the cross and coming to Jesus, to that cross, focusing on his sacrifice for us, that is one more thing that produces unity. That's part of that hope. But I think there's another piece of that hope. That hope has a cause, the cross, it has a result, and that's eternal life, heaven. And we're going to be together in heaven if we're Christians. And in some ways, I think we need to realize church is training camp for heaven. If we can't get along here, how can we get along with each other in heaven for eternity? And I think part of what God wants us to do as new Christians is get some of the rough edges ground off in that rock tumbler as the church is tumbling around and we're tumbling with each other and rough edge meets rough edge. But in that rock tumbling, you know what comes out, don't you? Beautiful, polished stones. It's hard to relate what goes into the rock tumbler and what comes out. But something beautiful comes out as a result of all that tumbling. And I think that's part of God's design. In the tumbling of the church, sitting next to people that I don't always agree with, just like, what are they doing? The music they like that I don't like, and just on and on the list of differences go. But as we stay together in that church, the rough edges get tumbled off. And we get polished. And we become beautiful, ready for heaven. It's all part of that one hope that we have. The next thing Paul lists is one Lord, one Jesus. We follow the same leader. And if we're listening to the same leader, our disagreements go away. Unity is produced. That's a challenge we all have to realize that if I accept Jesus, I get his followers with him. And I think there's too often as individual Christians today, we think we can accept Jesus without the followers. And that's not how Jesus does it. He says, you want to follow me? Great. Join the group. And there's going to be people, I think the 12 disciples had lots of friction. We know the one classic one where the mother of James and John says, hey, can they have first place? And, and we read right in the Gospels where the other disciples are off in the corner grumbling we don't know whether they were grumbling just because she got in first and they wanted their request too, or they just got beat out or whatever. We know they had conflict. But that doesn't mean they formed two groups to follow Jesus. He said, we're around the same campfire tonight, and let's talk about the day. And guys, we're going to have to work it out. And that's what it means to follow Jesus still today for us. The next thing Paul says is there's one faith. We have the same call of Jesus, the same Bible, the same directions from him. We are on the same path, and being on that same path of faith should draw us together. The next thing Paul lists is one baptism. I understand that baptism 2,000 years later has come to mean different things and at times has been a source of controversy, or is a source of controversy. But the simple facts are that when when Paul wrote this in the first century, there was one baptism. Everybody experienced it. It was water baptism. It was something they all went through. It was just the norm. And Paul says that's part of it we're all one here we've all entered the same door we've all gone through the same things we've all decided to follow jesus and all of that is one more force pulling us together one more thing there is one god i think a lot of us would probably have put that at the top of the list i think paul saved the best the biggest to last We have one God who, even though He is three, Father, Son, and Spirit, still exists as a unity, as one God. And that God who is our God, who controls us, who we want to listen to and follow, that unity of God calls us to be united. Now, I want you to notice the list, and that's part of why I wanted to make a slide of it. Paul makes a point by the length of his list. He's trying to say, please see all of the things that God has put in place. And collectively, they become even more powerful. It's not just any one of them, any one of which would be powerful. But when we realize all these things that Paul, that God has put together, all of those are pulling us like rubber bands, bungee cords, pulling us together. And what did he say in the beginning? All you got to do is cooperate with this. Don't fight this. God is doing all of this to produce unity in the church. Just don't fight it. Help it. And that, of course, is the next point. What do we do? God has provided all of these things to pull us together into unity. But what do we need to do? And that's why I want to go back and pick up on verse 2 that I skipped over. Live a life worthy of the calling. And then he begins in verse 2. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. And I want to add the beginning of verse 3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Five things that Paul lists there that we need to do. The first is we need to be humble. Especially if there's a hint of conflict, that can get hard to do. We get defensive, don't we? And in studying the process of conflict, one of the things we do is our minds get less open. And so what happens is we start to become more and more convinced of how right we are. And we become more and more convinced of how wrong the other person is. And one of the things that gets lost in that process is a humility that says, you know, I'm not always right. And I don't think so in this case, but maybe I'm wrong here. I could be wrong. That's humility. It keeps us open. We remember our own sinful ways and that at times we're not a prize. Just as that other person who frustrates us, we think, well, there's sure no prize. Well, neither are we and that humble person keeps that perspective and in that humility we don't do all the talking we spend more time listening trying to understand their view one of the one of the you know in a, in a conflict situation where that unity is being threatened it's hard to do but one of the best things you can do is sit down and say you know we obviously disagree here. I just need to understand where you're coming from. And I, that's hard to do if you're dealing with somebody who is just like, they believe what? They want to do what? And you think it is the dumbest thing you have ever heard of or the most evil thing you've ever heard of. But instead of screaming at them to sit down in humility and say, help me understand. You see, I'm not even saying you're going to agree with them when it's all over. But in humility, you've quit talking and you're listening. And you're trying to understand where are they coming from? What's important to them? What's driving them in this whole situation? We need to be humble. Directly linked to that is to be gentle. Again, can we use the phrase of Jesus? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I think that's one of the easiest ways to explain what does it mean to be gentle. Because it's very clear to us how I want others to be gentle to me. Please be patient with me. Please listen. Please, if you have to yell at me, don't yell loud. Be gentle with me. We, we see that very clearly. But do we just as clearly treat others that way? I think we all know stories where we have seen in the church people treated in ways that are totally unchristian. And we say, how can Christians do that? Well they've stopped being gentle. They become crusaders out to kill evil. And in the process, they have lost humility and they've lost gentleness. We can have conflict, we can disagree, and we can work through it if we remain gentle with each other. That's Paul's second challenge. And the third one is be patient. People are not perfect. Deal with it. Because the truth is, neither are we. And that's something that it's hard to remember. Because if we remember it, it helps us be patient with other people. And we need to grant people that second and third and fourth chance. And we need to realize that people struggle with overcoming things. And all of those things that irritate us, we need to be patient with them. As God is patient with us. How many times has God have had to forgive us? How many times have we come to communion for one more week saying, God, I'm sorry, I blew it again this week. How many times? Well, it depends on how many years we've lived, doesn't it? Because we continue to blow it. And we are so grateful that God continues to be patient with us. And he asks us to be patient with others. I think that's why we need the Spirit. We need the Word. We need Jesus. All those things that God has given us to help bind us together. We need those to have that kind of patience. But we can do that. I thought of an interesting question. When people fail, let me back up. You can tell how a dog's treated by how he reacts to you. If a dog's been beaten and you hold out your hand to that dog, you'll see the dog cower. If a voice is raised, if that dog has been abused or yelled at, you'll see that dog cower. You can tell how they've been treated. When people fail around you, how do they react? What are they expecting from you? Now, this is a painful question, but I think we all need to ask it of ourselves. When people fail around you, how do they react? What are they expecting? Are they cringing because they know they're going to get yelled at? Are they cringing because they know they're in deep trouble? Or are they looking and knowing they're going to get encouragement and understanding and patience? Are we living out that patience with others? It'll show in how they react. The fourth one, Paul says, is bear with each other in love. These all bleed together. They're not distinct, separate things. The the word that Paul uses here in the Greek is literally... Put up with a lot. I like that. You need to be willing to put up with a lot. Not put up with a little and then get even. Put up with a lot. The best example I know to help us understand this is when Peter comes to Jesus. And I think Peter thinks he's doing a great job when he says, you mean I need to forgive seven times? And I think Peter's sort of proud of himself at that point. I'm willing to go seven times of forgive. And, of course, Jesus blows his socks off because he says seven times. Are you kidding me? I need you to forgive 70 times seven. And at which point, as you know, Peter, he walks away mumbling. (laughs) He's like, well, I can't do that. I can't do that. But Jesus is making a point you need to be willing to put up with a lot if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be part of my followers because I put up with a lot and I need you to be like me. And I need you to be willing to forgive and then forgive again and then forgive again and then forgive again. And we just keep going because that's really his point. How do we do this? Well, we do it with love. And, of course, the love that Paul uses here is agape love, which is that love that says, I am doing what's in your best interest. I'm not doing what's in my best interest or comfortable for me. I'm doing what's best for you, even if it will cost me. I'm going to put up with a lot because it's what's in your best interest. And I want to add in the fifth, what Paul begins verse, five, uh, verse uh, 3 with. Make every effort. Oh. I didn't make it. But the fifth one is to make every effort. To work at it. This is going to be hard work at times to be this kind of person who produces unity and doesn't add to division. Because unity is that important. How important is unity? I want to close today with this passage from Jesus. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar and go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. If you're in the middle of church and you realize there is disunity and you are in any way part of that disunity, Jesus challenges stop everything and go deal with that cause of disunity and remove it so there's unity again and then come back and we'll do worship. What I want you to see is how important Jesus sees unity is. He's right there with Paul. And it is a challenge to each of us. Because there is always going to be the pulls of the world and our own sinfulness to cause disunity. And that's why Paul says we have to work at maintaining this unity that God has done so much to produce. We need to do our part to keep it. Let's pray. Father, these are challenging words of Paul. And it's not always easy, and doing our part is not always feel good. But Paul knows very well how important unity is. Important for us as Christians and what we experience in our own community of faith, but also important for our credibility before the community around us. And so I ask you to hear clear, help us hear clearly this challenge of Paul, that we would do everything we can to maintain the unity you've created through the Spirit. In your Son's name.